The scripture lesson this evening, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Having just read verses 19 and through 21 in the gospel reading, I'll pick up the reading in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the uh, the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And may you direct our hearts to understand his teaching this evening. We pray for your Spirit's help and strength in this evening hour, and that you would give us concentration of mind, of heart, and of will, and direct us now in your word, we humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This evening's service is not covenant renewal, and so it's not as important as worship held on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day. But I would argue that what we're about this evening, as well as our brothers and sisters in the faith who are engaged in a similar service, that this is still more important than meetings between presidents, worth more of our time and attention than the latest political headline, or even the latest balloon sighting. And that's not to say that those things don't have their place, because they do. But regardless of the latest proclamations or machinations from Washington, D.C., Moscow, Russia, Beijing, China, or even Nashville, Tennessee, we should all take a, like, a lively interest in what Jesus has to say in our text this evening, especially as we enter into the Lenten season. Here, we are getting to listen in on Jesus' instruction to his disciples on the mountain. And I don't want you to forget that because I think we have a tendency when we read these latter portions of the Sermon on the Mount to kind of pull them out of context, oblivious of what's preceded it or how it fits into the overall structure. 
And this is significant because Jesus is teaching his disciples what life in the kingdom of God looks like. That's what the Beatitudes are all about at the beginning of chapter 5, in which we just chanted. And then Jesus goes on to set before the disciples their identity as salt and light and how he came to fulfill the law. He goes on to correct the mistaken thinking and teaching of the day. In chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, we hear the refrain again and again, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And it's that section of chapter 5 that corresponds to where we find ourselves here in chapter 6. In verses 1 to 18 of chapter 6, where the Lord speaks about almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, that stands at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7. So broadly speaking, Jesus is still correcting the mistaken notions and teachings of the day. For what kind of Messiah, for what kind of Savior were the Jews looking? A political leader who would lead the revolt against the Romans and free Israel from that oppressive government. They were looking for a physical kingdom like the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus ushers in the heavenly kingdom that manifests itself upon the earth in a way not imagined. So Jesus is saying, this is how my kingdom is manifest. This is how those, who, this is how those belonging to my kingdom live. And while it might seem that Jesus addresses several different topics in verses 19 to 34, a careful reading and rereading will soon reveal that these verses can stand as a single unit, that they're connected with overlapping themes and progression. So what is Jesus talking about in these verses, particularly verses 19 to 24 to begin with? Well, he's mainly speaking to treasure or possessions, our attitude toward them, what the disposition of our hearts is, toward such things. And while we might think that Jesus' statements on this topic are few, that's actually far from the case. Richard Halverson wrote that Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing because money is of first importance when it comes to a man's real nature. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through Scripture, there's an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. Martin Luther is reported to have said, There are three conversions, the conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. Now, those are interesting statements to think about, and Jesus' teaching here certainly relates. So let's let's look more at the specifics of what Jesus is saying, and we'll start with verses 19 to 21. Jesus begins by giving a negative command of what the disciples are not to do. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. Immediately, we, note, uh, we need to note what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying here. He is not condemning all owning of possessions. That's not in view here. The language is don't treasure up treasure, which has the idea of accumulation for the sake of accumulation, for the sake of treasure itself. See, there's a, a miserly hoarding of wealth and possessions that is in view here. And the fact that it's on the earth is Jesus' way of saying that it, it only has a view to the present and doesn't look to the future. And how does Jesus argue his case? Well, when you hoard things, they're going to deteriorate anyway. You know, if you have a lot of clothes, before you get around to wearing them all, the malls will get to them. If you hoard a lot of money, then it will rust before it is used. <coughs> Furthermore, a thief could easily break through the wall of a house made of mud bricks and steel clothes and money. 
the levels of protection for possessions that we have today were not known in the ancient world. You know, they didn't have safes and other such means of protection. People's options were to keep things in their house or to bury things or possibly to hide things in a cave, none of which were very secure options. Furthermore, the temple functioned as a type of bank for some people, but what does Israel's history testify and what's looming in AD 70? The destruction of the city and the temple and the pillaging and looting and the loss of earthly treasures. The temple is also the house into which the thieves, the Romans, can break in and steal from, and that's going to happen about 40 years from when Jesus gives his teaching. And in an, in an indirect way, Jesus is speaking to the misconceptions about the kingdom and how Israel has failed to fulfill her identity in service to the world. So he's come to establish his kingdom for that very purpose. Therefore, as the church, as Christians, we need to have a, a proper perspective of our possessions. Are we getting stuff for the sake of getting stuff? Are you only concerned with what you can obtain or what you get out of something here and now? In the obtaining of possessions, is there a greater purpose in mind? Are you generous in your outlook or miserly and selfish? And perhaps this is an extreme example, but it paints the picture well, well enough. You know, for those of you who've read uh, Tolkien's The Hobbit or maybe even seen the cartoon movie, what purpose did Smog the Dragon's treasure serve? None. He, he hoarded it for himself. It wasn't used in service to others at all. So the principle of what Jesus is saying is don't be like smog when it comes to your money and possessions. And surely you can see how this applies to anyone regardless of his or her economic class. Jesus is speaking as much to the poor as he is to the wealthy because he's speaking to attitude, to the disposition of the heart. You know, you can be every bit as much like smog with a few things as with many things. Over the years, there have been occasions when Deborah or I posed the question to one of our children, are you being a hoardy dragon? Hoardy actually isn't a word. Um, maybe it is now, uh, but you get the idea. Well, Jesus goes on to the positive aspect of the command in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, the contrast is where the treasure is stored, isn't it? And maybe you notice that in verses, that verses 19 and 20 are almost identical. So Jesus is saying, treasure up treasure in heaven. What does that mean? And how do you go about doing that? Well, part of the answer is to understand that Jesus is not strictly drawing a contrast between that which is material, the earth, and that which is immaterial, heaven. Often enough, when we hear Jesus make statements like this, our thoughts go off in the clouds somewhere, and we have a vague sense of what he's saying, though it doesn't really make sense to us, and so we simply resolve to trust what he says. Well, of course, we should trust what Jesus says, and Jesus is calling the disciples and us to live by faith. And just as we're called to righteous lives done in secret before Heavenly Father, and not for the praises of men, so now we are to store up heavenly treasures instead of earthly ones. But also understand that Jesus is not contrasting present earth with future heaven. And we know this because that's not how Jesus or the scriptures really refer to heaven and as, as a future destination, but, as a, but a present reality. Furthermore, Jesus tells him to store up the treasures now and not just with the sense of cashing in at some future point. Now, the storing up treasures in heaven now is tangible. 
And it's accomplished through the earlier part of Jesus' instruction to the disciples. They could lay up treasures in heaven by living out the instruction of chapter 5 and the section of chapter 6 immediately before our text. You store up treasures in heaven in the kingdom of God when you rejoice and are glad in the face of persecution. When you properly deal with anger and lust. When you keep your word. When you diffuse situations with enemies. When you give alms, pray, and fast. And even more, it means being committed to the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated because the kingdom itself is a treasure, as Jesus later expounds in chapter 13. It's a treasure that demands a man, woman, or child to give up everything in this life for its sake. And part of our storing up treasure in heaven is an answer and application of the kingdom prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through the righteous lives that we live, which includes every area of our lives, including our money, we live according to Christ's commands. We are storing up treasures in heaven. And remember, Jesus is our example. He is heaven and earth joined. And what was his premier example? The giving of his life away for the sake of others. He expended his life for his people, and so we are called to the same. We treasure up heavenly treasure as we invest in others, as we use our money, our possessions, our homes, food, belongings, everything for the sake of our spouse, our children, our friends, our family, our church, our neighbors, and so forth. And when our lives are governed in this way, then it reveals what's in our heart. Even as Jesus says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart is committed to Christ's kingdom and cause then you understand that your life is chiefly lived in the giving of it away in service to others. Our treasures reveal our loyalties. Are you investing in the kingdom, in the heavenly treasures that are ultimately secure and lasting? And as you rightly seek to store up heavenly treasures in the present, are you doing so with a view to what God has promised to do upon the earth through the church as his kingdom reaches to the ends of the earth? Well, that brings us to verses 22 and 23. And Jesus' words here are a bit baffling and difficult to understand. But let's see if we can get some sense of the point he's making. This isn't a random statement that he's making, but fits with what was just said and what comes after. But he begins with this statement. The lamp of the body is the eye. Now, perhaps that seems like a strange metaphor at first. And immediately we think of our eyes as headlights, as if wherever we gaze, we're we're shedding light on something. The eyes of a lamp actually has some precedence in Scripture, so Jesus isn't simply creating uh, a completely new metaphor. Even as we read in Proverbs 15, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart. So what do eyes do? Well, they see things, right? And more to the point, in the biblical sense, they make judgments. And we've, we've talked about this on plenty of occasions before. We see something, and immediately we evaluate what we see. The eyes are instruments of judgment. And Jesus says that when the eye is healthy, the word can also mean singular or sound, then the whole body is full of light. Pretty good case can also be made that Jesus is actually referring to a generous eye. Now, we might think that the eyes are like windows letting in light, but that's not the metaphor Jesus is using. Now, the eye is the lamp. And if the eye is singular, if it makes right judgments, then the body is full of light. But if the eye is evil, if it's miserly, if it's an eye like that of Ebenezer Scrooge before he was visited by the Christmas ghosts, then your body will be full of darkness. 
And so the implication Jesus seems to be making is that how the eye looks upon treasure determines what is in the body. There may even be a sense in which the eye simultaneously shines outwardly and inwardly. But notice the last statement that Jesus makes in verse 23. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, that's an odd statement, isn't it? If the light is darkness... See, we typically juxtapose light and darkness, as often the Bible does. But here Jesus equates a kind of light as being darkness. What does that mean? Essentially that the person with the evil eye, with the miserly eye, is blind and self-deceived. They cannot make judgments according to principles of the kingdom of God, the God who is light. This principle applies to Israel on a corporate level as well. She's a body, figuratively speaking, and her leaders act as her eyes, those scribes and Pharisees whom Jesus calls blind guides. Israel needs a new eye, and Jesus, whose eyes are a flame of fire, he is the healthy eye that is needed, the true lamp, the light of the world that corrects the vision for the kingdom that isn't bound to the earthly definitions of kingdoms, but can see the way and the treasure that is to be sought for the heavenly kingdom upon the earth. Again, these are a couple of verses that are a bit difficult to understand, but I, but I trust the overall point is understood in that, that we have a healthy eye so long as we are making judgments according to the principles of Christ's kingdom. And just as we treasure up treasure by faith, so Jesus is telling us how we are to make judgments by faith regarding earthly and heavenly treasures. Next we come to verse 24, and this, this verse is structured beautifully in the form of a chiasm, and Jesus is Jesus' point is pretty straightforward. You can't serve two masters. You can only serve God or mammon. And the word mammon is an Aramaic word for refer, uh, referring to money, possessions, property, and resources. But Jesus used it in such a way as if, as if to refer to a rival God. And he does so again to further make the point about where our loyalties lie, where the affections of our hearts are set with him who dwells now in heaven, or upon the things of the earth that will not last. And the word translated serve is related to the word for slave. And so Jesus is saying you can't be a slave to God and money. You have to be a slave to one or the other. You will hate and despise one and love and be devoted to the other. And just as there are two eyes, one sound and one evil, so now there are two masters, God and mammon. And if mammon is your master, it will boss you around. Don't kid yourself that it won't. It will tell you that you need to work later hours and make it up to your family with an extra special vacation that you make with the money. It will tell you to be in a panic over the economy and inflation and that you need to make more money to ensure your future security. It will tell you to look at all of the things you can get now to make your life easier and more comfortable. It will tell you that greed is good. And like any other false god, mammon's claims are ultimately empty and you will be left with nothing. But again, Jesus is expounding kingdom principles and what discipleship to him looks like. We're called to loyalty to him and service to others. He's urging the disciples to get their priorities right, and he's urging us to the same. You cannot have divided loyalties on this front. Each of these masters wants you wholly to himself, and if you attempt to serve them both, one will eventually hold your affections and the other you'll despise. Not to make too many Tolkien references this evening, but consider the character of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. He was conflicted between Frodo as his master and the ring as his master. And ultimately, he had to choose one or the other. He was driven to a choice. 
And Jesus is saying that principle holds true in the real world, particularly when the masters are God and mammon. Well, that brings us to verses 25 to 34, and what is undoubtedly a familiar text to you. And I, and I trust that you can see how this section connects with what we just studied. And given the current state of things in our country and even circumstances in other parts of the globe, I trust a brief consideration of these verses will be beneficial to our faith. Setting before the disciples the, the principles concerning their chief loyalty, Jesus then provides for them a practical application. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And, and let's be clear at the outset what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. He's not setting before his disciples a careless attitude about food, drink, or clothing. He's not encouraging any kind of laziness as if the disciples are just to sit around and wait for God to bring things to them. Not at all. Jesus says, don't be anxious about these things. Anxiety is care taken to an unhealthy extreme. If these things become all-consuming to your life and are the focus of your thoughts and energy, then you're anxious. Jesus isn't taking away all care. We have some care, but immoderate care is condemned. We have toil and care, but are to be free from anxiety. Christ doesn't forbid every kind of care, but only what arises from distrust. And consider that Jesus argues his case in a beautiful fashion. Isn't life more than food? See, Jesus is widening their vision and perspective. Isn't the body more than clothing? He's challenging the disciples to look at where the greater importance lies and to understand that they aren't to be anxious about the necessities of life because there are even more necessary necessities, so to speak. He's telling them not to be anxious about life to the point that they forget to live life. And notice how Jesus argues from creation, as if he would send us back to Genesis 1 or... or Psalm 8 or the Proverbs. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the heavens. They don't plant seeds. They don't reap their harvest. And they don't store food in a barn. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The heavenly Father feeds the heavenly birds. How much more so those belonging to the kingdom of heaven. The humanity that is the climax of creation. Then in verse 27, Jesus asks who can add a cubit's length of time to the span of their life. Uh, the cubit was a measurement of about 18 inches. And Jesus seems to be saying, uh, by worrying, can you add 18 inches to the length of time ordained for you? No, you can't. In fact, studies have shown and doctors report that anxiety and worry can actually shorten one's life. Worrying and, worry and anxiety don't get you anywhere. It achieves nothing. Then in verse 28, Jesus moves on to clothing. And notice how he's, he goes from the heavens to the earth, from the sky to the field. Consider the flowers of the field. God causes them to grow and they don't toil to the point of exhaustion. They don't sew their own clothes. The flowers don't make their garments. God does. And not even Solomon in the finest raiment of his day was as richly dressed as a simple flower is. And if God gives such beauty to flowers and grass that are gone in a moment, that are even used to keep a fire going in the oven... And how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you little faith ones? You know, take the time to study the creation, and when you do, you will understand the life of faith all the more. Trust God more readily and fully as you observe his ways with creation he has made. And there's a, there's a jubilee theme in relation to the Lord's Prayer 
and, and the forgiveness of debts earlier in the chapter. And, and that theme appears to continue here in trusting the Lord for the provision of needs. During Jubilee, Israel was to give the land rest, trusting in the Lord to provide from the previous year's harvest that was stored. And as Jesus has inaugurated the greater Jubilee, so his disciples, his people, are to live with the understanding that God will provide the necessities of food and clothing. This is a mark of the kingdom that has come. And if we're anxious about the future, if we're fearful about the perceived distance of what we think we can control and what we can't control, then that's the evidence of little faith. Anxiety, again, at its core is distrust. When we're anxious, then God isn't in the picture at all. We've removed him from the gaze of our faith. So Jesus is instructing, commanding his disciples and giving them these vivid images of why their trust in their heavenly father need not falter. And as Jesus calls his disciples to this life, isn't it the case that he lived this life himself? He implicitly trusted the father to provide for him. Jesus' security was not in his earthly possessions. He's calling his disciples and he's calling each of us to the same. Don't be anxious about what you will eat, drink, or wear. That's not to be your all-consuming focus. That's what the Gentiles go after, those pagans that pray to any and every god and attempt to get what they want and need. No, that's not how you're called to live because your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, your focus is the kingdom of God. Above all else, seek the kingdom and its righteousness. It's your ultimate and only priority. Seek the kingdom that has come in me, Jesus is saying. Seek the realm of rule that I'm establishing and live according to laws that I'm giving you, which is the righteous life of that kingdom. Because when you do that, when your focus is there, you need not worry about these other things. The, the kingdom of God, the future, has burst into the present, and you're called to live according to that heavenly reality here upon the earth. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It might seem that Jesus is ending on a sour note, so to speak, but, but really, Jesus is just being realistic, and that's rather refreshing, don't you think? Jesus isn't giving you know, pie-in-the-sky platitudes that we you know, kind of go through life in a dreamy state like Luna Lovegood. No, Jesus is setting before his disciples a solid faith, a determined faith, a faith that is focused upon Christ and the priority of his kingdom. Tomorrow, the future, you don't know what that holds anyway. So there's no point in being anxious about it. Today has enough in it in which you're called to walk by faith. And that's where your focus needs to be. Walk by faith today, trusting your heavenly Father for tomorrow, because that's the way of his kingdom. And isn't it marvelous how Jesus emphasized not only God's mastery over the creation, but he makes it a point to say, your heavenly Father. You know, this same Father to whom we, who we pray. The one, the same Father to whom you pray. The one you have a real and personal relationship with. You see, Jesus is not talking about a distant God who doesn't care about beauty and life and food and clothes. He's talking about the Creator Himself who has filled the world with wonderful and mysterious things, full of beauty, energy, and excitement, and who wants his human creatures above all to trust him and love him and receive their own beauty, energy, and excitement from him. 
We don't set our hope on the uncertainty of earthly riches or the unknown of tomorrow, but on our heavenly Father who richly provides for us everything to enjoy, even as Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter. In many respects, in the Sermon on the Mount, we are presented with the Jesus who is a greater Solomon, imparting wisdom, wisdom of the kingdom, wisdom for sons and daughters, if they would live truly prosperous lives in this life to which we're called. Hearing Jesus' teaching, you can almost hear the echoes of Solomon uh, in Proverbs 2 when he declares, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. See, God's God's people have always been called to be treasure seekers. Solomon continues, For the Lord gives wisdom, From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. See, there's protection in pursuing this wisdom, even as Jesus is imparting to the disciples and to us. Yes, to to a degree, it's, it's paradoxical. In not seeking, you'll find. In not pursuing, you'll obtain. But such is the life of faith, a life of blessing, and a life in which we'll never lack for what is needed. Let us pray. Almighty God, who lives forever, but has set bounds to our lives on this earth that we cannot pass, grant us true wisdom, that we set not our hearts on earthly things, neither follow after mammon, but seek first your kingdom and the righteousness of your Son. By the operation of your spirit, teach us to remember our identity as those who belong to your kingdom. Help us to fix our hearts and hopes above where Christ is, sitting on your throne. We pray in his name. Amen.